As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Welcome to another classic replay from the archives of Unbelievable. We hope you enjoy the conversation and do let us know what you think. You can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk and leave comments on our Facebook page, Premier Unbelievable, or tweet us at unbelievablefe. For many more resources to help both believers and skeptics to explore faith, please visit our website, premierunbelievable.com. Registering there will unlock access to all content on the website, as well as giving you special access through the weekly newsletter to exclusive content such as bonus videos and ebooks. That's premierunbelievable.com. And now, here's today's unbelievable classic replay hosted by Justin Briley from 2016. Well, today on the programme, uh, we're talking about the man who went from being a Christian to being a Jew to being an atheist. It's the story of Luke Griffith Williams. Now, Luke came on Unbelievable early in the life of the show. At the time, he was a Christian, but with sceptical questions, I think he'd be happy to say. Uh, he went on to train, however, for ministry in the church. But questions surrounding Christ, his messianic status, and the Christian view of sin led him to leave Christianity and, in fact, convert to Judaism. After a few years, though, he began to have doubts over the reliability, historicity of the Old Testament stories, the narrative of the Jewish people, and eventually he became an atheist. Well, that's the potted history. He's going to give us slightly more detail in the programme today and tell us about that journey. With me in studio is Richard Harvey. Now, Richard is a senior researcher with Jews for Jesus and a former academic dean of All Nations Christian College. Uh, Richard himself is a Jewish follower of Jesus and is going to be interacting with Luke about his journey and so it's a great pleasure to have you both joining me on the program today gentlemen thank you for being with me and um, before we come to you Luke um, perhaps because you'll have more time I'll give you some time to, to explain your story in some detail um, could we get the potted history of, of how you became a Jewish follower of Jesus uh, Richard yes Justin well nice Jewish boy from South London grew up uh, going to liberal synagogue in and then really through a process of searching and two friends who were believers in Jesus, I came to the view that uh, actually it was true that mm-hmm. Jesus was the Messiah. But I realized that being Jewish, this wasn't a popular idea. So I said to my friends, well, perhaps you're right, but I'm Jewish. We're not supposed to believe that. But I ended up uh, having to get down on my knees and ask God to forgive me the wrong in my life and uh, accepting Yeshua, Jesus as the Messiah. And since then, uh, not only myself, but my wife, Monica, and my family, we're Jews. We believe Mm -hmm. in Jesus as Messiah. 
And uh, I've really been trying to understand more of what that means, that when you're Jewish and you believe in Jesus, you get the best of both worlds and a few of the headaches. <laughs> I mean, you, your large book on the subject, uh, quite an academic book, but, but um, with, with lots of endorsements, is, is mapping Messianic Jewish theology. There's a website as well for that. Um, I, I mean, this has, in a sense, become your life's work, putting together judaism and christianity and and finding that meeting place that we call messianic judaism yeah i I didn't choose to be born jewish it happened my family my parents are jewish originally from uh, germany and then i didn't particularly want to become a christian but uh, i think god came into my life and showed me the truth about yeshua jesus being the messiah who died on the cross and rose again from the dead And I think my questions since then have been, how do you fit these two things together? Of course, in the early church, in the days of Jesus and Paul and the first disciples, that was the norm, that Mm. uh, all the first followers of Jesus were Jewish. Today, after 2,000 years of Christian anti-Judaism and and Jewish uh, suffering and persecution, it's been very hard for both Jews and Christians to see that the truth of Jesus the Messiah is not dependent on what you're born. It's not dependent on the gift of faith as mm. well. Mm. Uh, but for me now, you know, I've been a believer 40 years, got uh, two children, two grandchildren. <laughs> I realize that uh, the more I understand of, of the real meaning of Jesus and his teaching and how that fits the scriptures, how it fits both the Christian and the Jewish tradition, mm. there's nothing more natural than being Jewish and right. believing in Jesus. Well, um, it, I think it'll be an interesting conversation that you're about to have with Luke, um, because, uh, Luke, it would be great for you to sort of explain, um, <laughs> in a nutshell, at the outset at least, your journey. Um, when you came on this show several years ago now, I, I think it's um, not even on the uh, the podcast, it was before we started podcasting the programme, you were a Christian. Um, so do you want to tell us about where you were at at that time and, and what happened since? Mm. I mean, I... I was a Christian and I, I started off um, at a very early stage, kind of 15 or so, I, I converted and became what I would describe as a, a conservative evangelical Christian. So very, very Bible believing, um, very literal interpretations. Um, every word was true. Mm-hmm. Um, and I heard a lot of preachers um, talking about and quoting the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and quite often I felt wasn't clear whether it was appropriate to be doing so or not. What the, It wasn't clear what interaction the New Testament had with the Hebrew Bible, what from a Christian point of view still remained valid or mm. what had been done away with, etc. So I decided to go on a bit of a a bit of a journey in comparing the two texts and trying to find out for myself how New Testament teaching compared to the teaching of the Hebrew Bible. And I I spent kind of a year or so doing that off my own back. And then I came across the the 613 mitzvah, the, the, the codification of Jewish law. And I found that was a really good starting point for my comparisons. And so I started doing this great big project. And late one night, I found a master's degree available in Jewish-Christian relations. And I signed up for that at Cambridge. And much to my surprise, having uh, not actually got a degree, I was, I was accepted on the basis of the work I've been doing. Um, and then alongside that, I, 
I began to pursue or feel that the priesthood was the right direction for me within the Anglican Church and went through a very lengthy selection process for that. Um, but during my studies of Jewish Christian relations, um, I, I was asked to examine, uh, one of the questions I was asked to examine was, what were the Jewish reasons for the rejection of Jesus as Messiah? And I wrote that essay and I kind of, it was on the back burner and it bothered me. Um, but I kind of tried to hold it together, if you like. Um, but it, it, it left me with disturbing questions and then during my training um there were two things i looked at i looked at the issue of the of forgiveness within the christian faith and the jewish faith and i found i found things that i really struggled to reconcile between the two and the christian vision didn't seem to me to follow on naturally from judaism I was then asked to write an essay on who Jesus was to me. And while, while I could give a, a happy explanation of that, um, when I was just talking, I found that when I tried to do it with footnotes, and when I tried to describe Jesus as God, that I just really couldn't make that work. Mm. Um, and even more around the issues of sin and forgiveness were, were really major, major stumbling blocks for me, which eventually led to me to me leading, leaving the church. Now, by this stage, I'd fallen in love with the, with the Talmud and the Mishnah and with uh, Judaism um, within a reform setting and still believing in God. But I, when I got back home and when I left uh, my training i started attending a, a local synagogue just not with any intention of converting but just as a place to still be able to connect with god really and mm. after a period of time that led to a conversion process which is then again a very lengthy process um but these these questions about out um i ended up with more and more questions about the historicity of the bible and um one of the things that had kind of kept my faith together, my belief in faith, is that I believed that we had to have a God for the existence of free will, which is a very complicated debate, which I'm going to try very hard for us not to get into. <laughs> um, and I was eventually convinced that that wasn't the case, which was really kind of took away the last pillar of my faith. So, um, and that lay, lay, left me... Coming from an atheist perspective, which is where I describe myself as now. Do you do um, you still? I mean, well, we'll come to the the deconversion from Judaism, I suppose, in due mm. course, because I think that'll be interesting to to cover in its own right. Um, but let's start more at the point where you went from Christianity mm. to Judaism, and um, and just th- this this issue you had, which was how do you, in the end, explain the uh, the deity of Jesus and the, um, I guess, the messianic claims of Jesus. Um, we'll, we'll we'll start there in a moment's time and yeah. see what Richard has to say. Before we do that, just a reminder, if you're listening and you'd like to perhaps leave your thoughts on today's programme, and we do encourage you to email in with your thoughts and we'll hear some of the feedback towards the end of today's programme to recent shows. Um, unbelievable at premier.org.uk is the email address. Uh, you're welcome as well to drop me a line via Facebook or Twitter at unbelievablejb, facebook.com slash unbelievablejb to follow the show on those social media networks. All of those links and more today's programme, um, videos and everything else you could want from the show page. That's premier.org.uk christianradio.com slash 
unbelievable. Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. Tell us a little bit more, Luke, about these issues you had. I guess I'm particularly interested to know why you came to eventually feel that Jesus didn't satisfy the criteria Mm. of of being the Messiah. I think a really good place to start thinking about... I, I think, first of all, we've, we've, we have issues with, if we say, what are the characteristics of God? And you might give me things like, God is all-powerful. Well, was Jesus all-powerful? Well, I, I think most Christians would say, well, no, God, God set aside that quality to become human. And you go, okay. Was, was Jesus all-knowing? Well, no, he's set aside that quality to become human. And you you go through the list and you end up saying, well, actually, there isn't a meaningful way in which we can describe Jesus as God. Mm-hmm. But we, we we come to a bigger issue, I think, which is we, we come to the, the, the story of the cross and the story of redemption and the story of forgiveness, which is which is I think I, w- I would be particularly interested in Richard's take on. And I think. One of my starting questions for Richard would be, at what does he believe as a as a Jewish Christian is the requirement for a non-Jew to have a place in the world to come? Hmm. Okay. Well, um, there's a there's a couple of areas you could go for there, Richard. Do you want do you want to tackle that first question and then and then talk about? Yeah, this, this um, so he's asked me the question before I've asked him any, but uh, it's a good question. What requirement for a non-Jew? Well, you know as a Reformed Jew, and, and by the way, I'm assuming that if you've been through the Reformed Jewish conversion process, then even if you become an atheist, you're still a Jew in that you've gone through the conversion, you've been circumcised, you've been accepted within a bet din as a convert. So even if you're a lapsed convert, I'm still thinking that you're Jewish, but is that correct as far as you're concerned, Luke? I don't know. Um, I, I I think I think me and Richard will come from a slightly different perspective on this, and this become and is again a, a a question of how you define people. Um, so Richard describes himself as a Messianic Jew because he is Jewish and he now believes in Jesus. Judaism as a whole would reject that claim. They would say sure. that if you have converted that to believe in Jesus as God is considered idolatry and you have chosen to not be Jewish as a religion as opposed to as a race and as a, you know. Um, And in the same way, Judaism generally accepts and says it's okay to be, you can be an agnostic and a good Jew, but if if you are rejecting God and saying you don't believe in God, then you have kind of deselected yourself as Jewish. Um, Well, then you've forfeited your place in the world to come. Would that be the answer to the the question Luke asked then? Well, I think Luke would have to redefine himself as as such a lapsed Jew that he's denied the the existence of God, that he's to be treated as an Amharetz or an apostate. I would say that, you know, the Jewish teaching is all Israel has a share in the world to come and the righteous of all nations has a share in the world to come. We're not given any guarantees of, as to who that includes, but it's an optimistic view. I think, you know, from the scriptures, we know that uh, Yeshua, Jesus said there is no, or it, it, he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And if you accept, as I do, the 
the divine and human nature of Jesus, then I'm saying the only sure way we can get to heaven is through faith in Jesus. But of course, Paul, for example, in Romans 11 says, uh, and so all Israel shall be saved. So I think going straight to a question on who is going to be in and who is going to be out is not the best way of deciding, is there a God? Is Jesus truly the Messiah? Where does your question stem from? Yeah, go ahead. According to Judaism, the requirements for a non-Jew to have a place in the world to come is following the Noahide laws, um, which are there there isn't a requirement for a non-Jew to follow Jewish laws because they were given to Jews. I couldn't come to you, Justin, and say, look, I've discovered that you've broken a law in Africa. I think you're deserving of a death penalty. You'd say, well, that's kind of not a jurisdiction I'm under. Mm-hmm. So one of, the, one of the problems, I think, within Christianity is that the starting point was that Jesus spoke about Judaism and he spoke to Jews about Judaism. Um, when... Judaism um, rejected Christianity. Um, There was an attempt to convert Gentiles. Now, the the way in which that's happened is to say, look, everyone is deserving of a death penalty and you need to be saved. But that's actually not the starting point through scripture. That's that's not the starting point through the Hebrew Bible. There, There isn't this sense that actually... Gentiles need to be saved, that there is a that there is a salvation that is necessary. Um, so one of the kind of fundamental blocks there's a real problem with, um, which becomes even more a problem when you get rid of things like a literal Adam and Eve, um, and you say actually yes we accept that there probably wasn't an actual Adam and Eve. So and which get which caused the problems for the concept of original sin, which isn't a concept that exists within Judaism um, in the way it does in Christianity. And which is another issue that I, obviously was part of the, the thing unravelling for you as a Christian, at least. Um, any response to, to any of this, Richard? I mean... Yeah, well, I'm, I'm trying really to get to the bottom of, of where Luke's coming from because it seems he's reacting against a lot of things. Um, Luke, I, firstly, I really appreciate your integrity and your honesty in, in describing your journey. But I do actually wonder why, if you had had a, a bit more guidance, either from the people you were studying with um, at Theological College, I'm not sure which one it was, or uh, even in your reform conversion process, because I, I cannot, I can give plenty of intellectual reasons for what I believe, but at the end of the day, my belief is, is an act of faith. It's a gift, in fact, from God, which I can't really sum up and make myself believe. It just happens to be that God has, if you like, revealed his love to me, and that's an experience that's come into my life, and uh, it wasn't even one I was particularly looking for. But for you, I think the journey you've been on has been almost a sort of naive faith, which were then, when you encountered some difficult decisions about the historicity, you know, is the Bible reliable? Is the Christian view of forgiveness compatible with the Jewish view? Um, How do you really understand the Messiahship of Jesus, his messianic claims? 
I mean, for all these questions, which are very good questions, there are perfectly good answers. So just to take one, for example, you talk about the historicity of the Bible. Now, for me, it's like Charles Spurgeon said, defend the Bible, I'd rather defend a lion. I don't go to the Bible looking for it just to be a textbook giving me uh, predictions and fulfillments. And uh, I actually look at it as, as a book where God speaks to me. And he speaks not just to give me intellectual understanding, but it gives me faith understanding as well. So, you know, for example, the historicity, are the narratives of the Bible reliable? And the answer is generally yes, absolutely. And uh, whenever whenever anybody says the Bible's full of contradictions or science or archaeology has disproved the Bible, I just say, well, well, show me. Give me one example. Is it the life of Abraham? Is it Moses' exodus from Egypt? Is it uh, the entry into the promised land? Is it uh, the resurrection of Jesus? Because for all these different issues, it's perfectly possible to have quite a substantial debate on it. But at the end of the day, people walk away with different views on this. And in my understanding, it's because of their previous assumptions and their predispositions already. Now, I came to the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus as a secular Jew studying ancient history, Latin and Greek. And I realized that whilst I didn't know about the events themselves, the documents recording them, the synoptic accounts of the last week of Jesus's life, etc., was thoroughly um, persuasive about the genuineness of the context and the history. And then I had something happen to me. I had an experience which, looking back now, I would say was a vision. I saw an empty tomb and I realized that Jesus had risen from the dead. And of course, being Jewish, this wasn't the most popular thing to say or to know. And so I said to my friends, perhaps you're Jewish. Sorry, perhaps Jesus did rise from the dead, but I'm Jewish and we're not supposed to believe that. And I tried to bury it. But I couldn't. And I'm not saying that I can prove without a shadow of a doubt that that event took place. But I'm also happy to say that the the reliability of Scripture and the, if you like, the prima facie evidence of Scripture is is totally credible. And then the gift of faith, I think, comes from that. I mean, you've you've described Luke um, the, mm. the intellectual doubts that, that led you out mm. of this. I mean, what was going on in that sense at a spiritual level? I think there's a couple of issues going on here. I think, first of all, I think I am more than happy to say, hey, here is something where we just don't know one way or another. And I can go, OK, this is something I can accept on faith. Something where we just we're just not sure. I think where I struggle more is where it comes to questions of intellectual integrity if you get into a situation where you have good evidence to say that something is not true and you then say, well, I believe it because I believe it. So if, if, we, if we found a text in the Bible and we said, yeah, this is... And let's say we were conservative evangelical Christians for a moment and we said but we absolutely believe that every word of the Bible is true uh, without question, which I don't think is the position which is coming from. But we'll, we'll take that position just for a moment. Well, I think we you're misrepresenting it... conservative evangelicals as well. I think a studied 
evangelical approach to scripture is to say that scripture is sufficient in all that it affirms. Luther and Calvin, for example, affirm the perspicuity of scripture, that it's clear in what it teaches, the sufficiency of scripture. But nobody ever said to throw your critical thinking out of the window and mm. and uh, read it in a simplistic, naive way. So mm. I just wonder, really, Luke, whether you were given good instruction on what it meant. I mean, J.I. Packer, one of the leading conservative evangelicals of the last century, would always talk about an informed theological understanding of what is Scripture trying to say to us, what did it mean to the original hearers, how then do we interpret and imply it? Go ahead with the thought, though. Um, in any case, Luke. Yeah. Um, if if we found a text that said metal always floats in water and we go to our sink and we take a metal spoon and we put it into water and it sinks, I think it's rational for us to go, this text is wrong. Yeah, this, so where, where is the text that says that? Now, so as I say, that, that, that's my starting point. Now, how I came to this, how I so my starting point was actually looking at a very random thing, which is looking at head covering in the second century. Um, BC or found, AD? Uh, well, in fact, I was looking at uh, second century um, BC right through to second century AD. So veiling um, practices for women or men covering their heads as priests worshipping in the both. temple? Okay, good. Right. Um, and what I found is that Paul's t- what Paul was saying about head covering was contradicted what it said in the Hebrew Bible. Um, that if what Paul was saying was true, what it said in the Hebrew Bible was unjust. Can you show me the specific contradiction? Yeah. Um, in, is there a particular verse we're looking yeah, at here? In, well, yeah, in... in Corinthians, Paul says that women should cover their heads. Yeah, of course, the Greek there is arkatakaluptos, which I think is better to translate as should have veiled hair. Yes, I I will happily take it as veiled hair. So where where is the contradiction with the Hebrew Bible passage? If if you go to Numbers 5, 11 you come across an account of a trial for a woman who has been caught in suspected adultery. And what happens is, is she is taken to the temple and she undergoes what's called the, 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 the ritual of the sotar. And um, she, she drinks some water from this vessel and she says a prayer to determine whether she's guilty or innocent. And prior to her saying that prayer, her hair is uncovered. Now, this is a woman who we haven't established whether she's guilty or innocent yet. And here is her head. We are being instructed that her head is uncovered. Yet in Paul, we've been told that this woman's hair should be covered. So I was suddenly in a situation where I was going, well, something is up here i've i've missed something i've you know something is going on that we don't know about Luke, you're using a sort of principle of exegesis which is mm. one of the um, midota rabbi ishmael 13 mm. principles of exegesis which is to try where a word occurs in two different passages you think it means the same thing and it applies in the same situation 
and and really i think it's just a, a not a very helpful way of of suddenly trying to ram one scripture into another so if you set the context of the two different passages mm. it's nothing like a contradiction in fact you could say that paul is trying to argue for order in worship in the church at Corinth, in mm. exactly the same place that the Numbers passage is trying to uh, argue for order in the Israelite community, especially in terms of wrong relationships and adultery. And in fact, the same implication is present in both passages, that to have an uncovered head is shameful. I and agree. So I, I don't see what I mean, not only is it a rather interesting example to pick on, but it doesn't really prove your point that it's a contradiction. I was hoping you were going to say something far more sort of gripping, if you like, like uh, Moses never came out of Egypt or uh, Joshua. Well, no, I, I, as, as, it, as it happens, I, I don't particularly believe that Moses came out of Egypt. But that, that's well, a, we, we, that's we, we, a, we're just running out of time in this section of the okay. show, guys. So let, let, let's just quickly draw a veil on it to use a pun uh, there and we'll come back to this um and and we'll continue to explore the issues you had that, that led you into judaism and i'm sure we'll get to what led you out of judaism and to, to being an atheist as well luke in the course of the rest of the program so uh, we'll take a quick break and we'll be back in a moment's time today we're looking at the story of luke griffiths williams on unbelievable uh, from christian to jew to atheist he's telling us his story and uh, my guest in studio richard harvey uh, who's a senior researcher for jews for jesus and former academic of dean of dean of all nations christian colleges with me as well for the conversation. This is the programme that gets you thinking every Saturday unbelievable. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Anti Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio. Well, welcome back to the second part of today's programme. Uh, we're talking about the story of Luke Griffiths-Williams on Unbelievable today. I'm Justin Briley, your host for the programme that brings Christians and non-Christians together for dialogue and debate. If you want more on the show, if you want to find out about past shows, uh, subscribe to the podcast, find out more of all the different articles, videos, blogs and so on. Uh, why not go to the website, premierchristianradio.com slash 
unbelievable. And if you want to get in touch with the programme, there's the ways to do that as well. We'll be hearing some of your feedback towards the end of today's programme. Uh, you can email in unbelievable at premier.org.uk. Well, uh, Luke, who joins me uh, via Skype on the show today, he's actually just made himself a cup of tea during the break. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a friendly conversation that we're having over a cup of tea uh, on Unbelievable today. But he's got an interesting story of faith because uh, he started out as a Christian, as we heard, and then certain intellectual doubts led him to convert to Judaism. And then in the end, uh, he's become an atheist as well. So I'm sure we'll get to that part of the story. But at the moment, in conversation with Richard Harvey from Jews for Jesus, who is himself a a messianic follower of Jesus as a Christian. So what did you want to pick up particularly, Richard, in terms of Luke's story? Because there there are various uh, bits that we've left hanging so far around the the deity of Jesus. Yes, I think just to make the point that there's nothing uh, contradictory about Yeshua as the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, being both fully human and fully divine. And and Luke, when you said, well, obviously God is all-powerful, but Jesus released his omnipotence, if you like, when he became human, that, that is the doctrine of kenosis, which says quite simply that God in human form, when Yeshua, Jesus, became a human being, he, he did this. And, uh, of course, in Jewish tradition, we know that the Mashiach, the Messiah, uh, the rabbis, you know, one says there'd be no Messiah, one says there'd be two Messiahs, one says there'd be a Messiah in every generation. There's no unanimity on this, but one of the key aspects of the Messiah is that he will suffer and die and be rejected. And so Yeshua in his humanity is fully able to suffer, to feel pain, etc. But in his divine, if you like, uh, pre-existence, he is there with the Father in heaven. I think your problem, Luke, is that you're using what I would call Aristotelian philosophical categories, which are not really Jewish or Christian. They were imported into Judaism and Christianity by medieval scholars like Maimonides in Judaism and Aquinas in Christianity, where they tried to define God in very narrow Greek philosophical terms. God is a incapable of feeling pain. God is incapable of having a body, that sort of thing. Now, that's not the God of the Bible. It's certainly not the God who feels pity and compassion with his people and ultimately is willing to suffer with them. So I think you had a wrong doctrine of God against which to compare the claims of of Yeshua, of Jesus. What do you say to that, Luke? Um, uh, Luke is correct, but I am a big fan fan of both Aquinas and Maimonides, so um, <laughs> bang, 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 bang down my head on some of my influences there. Um, I think, I think for me, the the issue with Jesus as God does become very tricky because I think, yes, if 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 we end up with a situation where we say yes. Jesus is God, but has none of the characteristics of God, and has cast aside all those characteristics. Then, it, it, I, for me, we end up with a problem with having a hundred percent God and a hundred percent human in the same body, kind of thing. We we get to a stage where we're saying, well, did Jesus divinely know Scripture, or did he learn Scripture? Was he was he, as appears to be the case, quoting scripture from uh, the Septuagint and the Greek translations of the scripture, or was he mostly actually relying on the Hebrew scripture? Was 
what was his understanding of things becomes very difficult. But we also come into this whole area of forgiveness, um, which I think we, we've touched on very briefly. But um, for me, I think there is a very big problem with the view that, and I think it's a very damaging view, that people are essentially deserving of death and that they are saved through this, through Jesus taking their punishment for them. Um, and that essentially we're, we, our starting point as humans is that we're basically broken, scummy people deserving of the fires or deserving of oblivion, whichever um, end time beliefs you have. And that the only way that we can have redemption and some kind of worth is when we have that worth standing behind Jesus. And I I actually think that that's a very damaging view of people. And I think that leaves people viewing themselves as far worse than they are. So you've got a problem in that sense, to give it its theological name, with with penal substitutionary atonement, the the idea of of Jesus bearing the wrath, the punishment that that should be ours um, in our place and so on. I mean, there's again, there's a few issues to to tackle there. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that when you said you had a problem with forgiveness and Jewish and Christian views being different, the normal way that argument is put is to say that in the Hebrew Bible, it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but Jesus tells us to love our neighbours and to forgive each other 70 times 7. And I often think that's the wrong way of putting the argument because, in fact, the forgiveness that God gives us in the Tanakh is constant. You know, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and we are taught to forgive our neighbours. And Yeshua, Jesus, is simply affirming that but i think you're right the problem you have is more with the logic of penal substitution if you like or a certain view of the atonement as the only way that we can receive forgiveness but i just remind you of the jewish teaching about sin and atonement in general that we have for example yom kippur the day of atonement the most holy day in the jewish year if you're telling me that it's not important for us to repent of our sins and that ultimately the only way we can know our sins are forgiven is because God has provided us with a means of atonement, whether it's Jesus or the sacrifice of, of animals in the temple, then I'd say to you, well, that's consistent in both Judaism and Christianity, that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. But we have to see that within the entire, uh, if you like, construction of, of life around the temple, that this was not just, uh, if you like, oh my God, I'm a terrible sinner, what can I do to be right with God? Help, I need a sacrifice. This is part of living in a community which knows that every year it comes before God to ask forgiveness and to be renewed in covenant relationship. And it seems to me this is exactly what Jesus does on the cross. He prays for those who are crucifying him. Father, forgive me, forgive them. They know not what they do. He says to the thief behind, beside him, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, I, like you, would probably question the way that some Protestant theologians have developed the doctrine of 
if you like, penal substitution. I think that's another discussion. My reading of, of the scriptures, both Hebrew Bible and the Brit Adashah, the New Covenant, is to say that really the means of forgiveness is through God's provision of atonement, and that means sacrifice. But we shouldn't have a narrow, naive view of sacrifice as just something dying in exchange for you. It's rather that you recognize your need for repentance. You offer God whatever it is you have, but you rely on him to provide the rest. And then, of course, forgiveness always leads to reconciliation and restoration of relationships. So the way that we know we're forgiven is by coming back into a joyful sense of God's presence and forgiveness. I mean, I I think you've misrepresented... Jewish belief a little bit um in, and you know I'm I'm sure you know to to quote an eye for an eye etc I mean I'm sure you are more than aware of both the Mishnah and the Talmud writings on that and the writings that were um the beliefs that were around about that at the time oh yeah of Jesus. no I'm I'm uh, criticizing that view as well as a as okay. a misrepresentation sorry yeah it's just that yeah. was what I thought you were going to say but you didn't <laughs> right <laughs> I mean, the, the, these issues you had with um, the deity of Jesus, and you, you can respond to this as well, um, Luke, if you like. But um, I mean, R- Richard's overall point seems to be he, what I'm getting from Richard here is is he just thinks that you you kind of threw in the towel a bit early, and that there are ways of understanding these things. These are theological questions that many people have wrestled with over the years, mm-hmm. and and sort of if there was a, a real faith commitment you, he might have expected you to sort of well you know dig and if if you struggle with the idea of penal substitutionary atonement perhaps look into other ways in which theologians and christians have understood the atonement of jesus and equally the the issue of um the kenosis and jesus shedding uh, those divine attributes in order to be fully human I, was it simply just that, that you couldn't put that logical puzzle together in your head? Um, what, was that kind of ultimately what yeah. kind of made you I mean, go ahead? I, I think it's a bit of an ad, ad hominy attack, if I may. And, you know, this, this, the starting point, Richard seems to be assuming is, well, you if if you've if you've come to a different conclusion from me, you can't have understood it properly, or you can't have asked the right people, or you couldn't have looked hard enough, or you know you you couldn't have had a proper faith to start with, um, which I I I struggle with. Um, I I did try to find answers to my questions, and I I, I sought them from from academics, from priests, from um, Franciscan brothers from a bishop from you know I um I did research and I did question and I did search um for me though um one of my starting points was um as someone who very much believed in our responsibility to share the good news but one of the things that I was doing was I was asking people to be prepared to challenge their own beliefs and to question what they believed in. And to do that, I had to be prepared to do the same as well. And if I, if my starting point was, I just believe that's it, or I've had an experience and that overtakes everything else, then that seemed to be to, to mean that I wasn't justified in asking others to reconsider their beliefs. 
to to be intellectually honest, I had to be prepared to put my own beliefs under the spotlight. And the difficulty was, was that when I put those beliefs under the spotlight, it just didn't stack up. Yep. Yes. When you were asked to provide the footnotes, you, yeah. as you say, you, you, you couldn't make it all hang together in mm. some sense. Yeah, R- Richard- And let me just say, I wouldn't want to be using an ad, ad hominem argument at all. Uh, Luke. I would just be saying to you, uh, you know, here are the problems you had. But, you know, there are many answers to these issues that are given in both Jewish and Christian understanding. And uh, I was just really saying, weren't you aware of them? Because many people who have of good faith and good intellect have have found them sufficiently convincing. So uh, I'm really asking about, you know, the, the need, the details in the footnotes, if you like, rather mm. than the the authorial intent of what you're writing. But but let me just come back to, to something. I mean, the nature of forgiveness for me is ultimately God forgives me because he loves me. And I know that I stand before God, whether I'm Jewish, Christian, whatever, I'm not perfect. Uh, my definition of sin, if you like, take away the letter S, take away the letter N, what have you got left? I. And I dwell in the midst of a, a sinful people, whether it's Britain or Israel, whatever. I know my daily need of God's forgiveness. And I'm also grateful that it's not a matter of me trying to persuade people to believe what I think is true. I actually think that faith is a gift. All I can do is provide the best evidence I can in both my life and my thinking. And it's up for other people to decide for themselves. But the experience I live on is that God is there and he loves me and has a plan for my life. And as hard as you, I've probably tried to disprove that Jesus is the Messiah or that the Bible is reliable because the longer you go on as a believer, the more doubts you have. But at the end of the day, you have to doubt your doubts and believe your beliefs. It's an interesting way of putting it. Um, we're, we're, we're I'm just going to remind anyone who's listening that you can uh, get in touch yourself. Um, I've given the email address a bit earlier, but uh, if you, if you want to uh, pop me your thoughts via Twitter and Facebook, uh, at UnbelievableJB and Facebook.com slash unbelievable jb uh, all the links and uh, links to my guests as well today uh, luke and richard here in studio with me um on on today's program premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable uh we're talking to luke griffiths williams today uh, his journey from christian to jew to atheist and i think that's where we need to go next in the conversation why did luke eventually leave judaism as well we'll come to that in uh, the next part of the show so we're going to continue talking to luke about his journey here on the show unbelievable with justin Briley. um luke i feel we should move it on then a little bit um let's talk first of all about those overall concerns that continue to assail you about the historicity in the end of the Old Testament narratives, yeah. um, because obviously you'd become a Jew. Uh, that's not an easy thing, by the way, is it? I mean, do you want to quickly no. describe the the process for converting to Judaism? Uh, I mean, you were in the Reformed tradition, but I, I understand that's still a, a pretty lengthy, you know, complex process. Yes, it is. And, you know, it, it involves um, learning Hebrew, which is not an easy thing to start with, um, and really... Um, studying and living with the community for a prolonged period of time, and, and for me, although I've been attending for some time before that, the actual the actual conversion process itself was a two three year experience. Um, 
ending in Abed Din, which is a, a religious court where where you're kind of examined to uh, before you are accepted as a Jew. I mean, in that sense, then then abandoning that w- was mm. in a sense. I guess possibly even more um, of a demand uh, of a step than, than than leaving Christianity. I don't know, but um, w- just give us a sense of of what gathered in terms of these intellectual issues you had that that made you eventually, um, you know, having undergone that long long yeah. conversion process, um, rejected in the end. Uh, I mean, I think I think me and Richard would probably agree that we probably haven't got a historical Adam and Eve. Um, I would expect, but we're we're in agreement on that. Well, shall we check with Richard? Yeah, where, no. Where he goes um, on that? I think I I I'm not normally taking position on these things. Uh, you know, one of my great teachers, Karl Barth, said, "Don't ask the question how could the snake speak." He asked the question, "Why was the snake so stupid?" So, uh, <laughs> I, I think, and again, Jewish tradition doesn't really have a strong position on the historicity of Adam and Eve. No. Very happy to believe in in the the nature of the story being fundamentally true. But it's telling history from the perspective of God's reading of history. It's his story. It is not trying to give us uh, a history in archaeological or biochemical or evolutionary terms. But on the other hand, I have no reason to doubt the the fundamental nature of that story being true. Yeah, so, I mean, you you would take a position which says that hey, this is a story which is trying to tell us something and trying to express to us something of God as opposed to being something which is containing um, an accurate historical account of an event. Well, I I don't even have as historiographical a, a sort of critical approach to it as that. I say that these stories, there's one in Genesis 1, there's one in Genesis uh, 2 to 7 or whatever, are accounts that are recorded, they are probably handed down through tradition, there are different emphases in the stories. They're not trying to tell us factual history in the way that, uh, you know, so yeah, but I'm happy to base myself on them. And we we move further on and we say, well, do we believe that the entire earth was flooded at the time of Noah? And we move a bit further on and we go, where, where is the earliest point where we can go, OK, here is, here, is our, here is our solid history. Here is something that actually physically happened as opposed to is trying to express to us some deeper meaning for them. And one of the places we end up is we end up in the temple and we end up saying, actually, I can prove that God is real. I can prove the history of the Jewish people because what I've got is I've got um, I've got the staff that Aaron held. I've got manna that fell in the desert. I've got uh, the the stone tablets on which God carved, and I've got this which proves our history, and it proves that what we are saying is true. Yeah, I think and you're what being. I'm going to do, um... I don't understand quite where you're going, but, you know, you cannot prove anything to anybody who wants to deny well, it. And I think you're you're actually being more credulous than I am, because I would say that if you could prove the existence of God, then God, God doesn't really need to exist. It's all in your head. 
And you well, must I, be I think that's an interesting question, which I'll come back to in a moment. But let, me, <laughs> yes. let, let me carry on just a little. <laughs> all right. Finish so your what, thought experiment. Yeah. Yes, go ahead. What we've got is we've got all these things and we put them in a box and we go, here we go. We've got proof that God is real. And But the difficulty is, is that if you looked at these things, if you looked at this proof of God, or if you even got near enough to touch them, you would surely die. So we're going to keep you away from these things and we're going to put a big curtain in front of it. And me or a member of my family will once a year or once every seven years go behind the curtain, have a quick peep and tell you, nope, they're definitely in there. It's OK, everyone. You can believe. Yeah, now, I don't think I don't think is, you give ancient humanity credit. You know, I mean, well, they, they weren't as credulous as that. I think you're well, that, using that, 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 a Spinoza-type rationalism almost to try and yeah. defy the, the world of you know supernatural reality and just say it's down to a sort of um, evidence that's verifiable. That that's not really a proof for the existence well, of God. Well, if you let me think, that that's what the Bible tells us is in the Ark of the Covenant. That's that's what the that's what the temple is built around. Yes, but the Bible's not saying that's the proof of the existence of God. The proof of the existence of God is I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. It's an existential experience of the Jewish people. It's the encounter and, of God with God at Sinai and the giving of the Torah. It's the provision of the manna in the wilderness. It's a whole series we, we, of historical events which lead yeah. to a worldview, which is a God-shaped worldview. So to yeah. say it's down to little bits and pieces that are held in a box in the Holy of Holies is really doing a disservice to the Scripture's own witness of who God is and how we can know him. The well, heavens think, declare the glory of God, says the psalmist. Now, I don't... Well, I think, get, go, I, go ahead, I think, I think the reason we get to what's in the box is because when we look at the archaeological evidence and when we look at the evidence um, of this mass migration of people um, and we look at this 40 years in the wilderness and all the rest of it... But, the, the evidence doesn't stack up for that. There isn't support of that. And so what we end up with is we do end up with a situation which says that actually what we've got to support the belief that these things actually took place is these artefacts in a box in a temple. And, and if, you, if you believe that, that that box contains those things and that that... That situation is indeed true, that if you did peek in the box, those things were there, and that, that evidence which has been, that those things that have been stored away are indeed in the box, that's great. If you believe that that sounds like a bit of a con, that if there was a group of people telling you that they got this proof in a box, that you're not allowed these items in a box that no one else is allowed to look in except those people and their family, if you think that feels a bit far-fetched and as if someone's pulling a swindle, then you end up in a different position. Yeah, well, but, you, you well, accuse me of an argumentum ad hominem of accusing mm. you of things. I'm going to accuse you of constructing straw men. I mean, this is just quite ridiculous, really, that people are not basing their proof of the existence of God on what was in the box. They're, I mean, for one thing, you cannot prove the existence of God to someone who's determined to deny it. The fool says in their heart there is no God, meaning somebody lacking spiritual openness and understanding. At the end of the day, the evidence for 
not only the existence of God, but the activity of God and the love of God. It's not just a philosophical proposition, but an experience of faith and experience the community has is, is far more than that. And, and aren't you just constructing straw men? We are going to get your answer to that in a moment's time, Luke, because we're already at the end of our second part of our show. And we're moving into the final section, really, which is where we start to wind things up. So uh, we will allow Luke to come back on that. Um, we're, we're having a really interesting discussion, though. And, um, you know, um, there's there's a few different points of view being expressed, uh, but it's it's I, I think it's being done in, in the in the right way and we're we're enjoying the conversation as we go along luke griffiths williams is uh, our christian to jew to atheist guest and it's his story that we're talking about and dissecting a bit on today's program richard harvey uh, who's from jews for jesus and a former academic dean of all nations christian college is with me as well uh, if you want more about his uh, book Ma- Ma- mapping messianic jewish theology well there's a website uh, which is of the same name just type it in and you'll and you'll find it on google um but uh, we're going to go to a quick break we'll be back again in just a moment's time as we conclude today's edition of unbelievable welcome back to the final part of today's unbelievable and we'll be hearing the final part of the discussion between Luke and Richard in a moment's time. Uh, Just a reminder that Unbelievable exists not only as a podcast and radio show, but also as a conference. And it's coming back for Saturday, the 2nd of July. Our focus will be on evangelism. So uh, put that in your diaries. And we're aiming to open up the ticketing in approximately two weeks time. So uh, uh, look out for that and uh, make sure you tell your friends and churches about it and so on. We've got some really exciting guests, uh, some um, speakers who are going to be joining us for this year's conference and we'll be revealing all of that in a couple of weeks' time. I'd also like to remind you that uh, this programme and Faith Explored brought to you in association with the magazine I edit, premierchristianity.com and uh, you can get hold of the latest sample copy by simply asking for one at premierchristianity.com slash free sample. Uh, one blog that's created a lot of interest on our website over the last couple of days has been um, the whole issue of Dan Walker, the BBC radio presenter, sports presenter and uh, the new host of uh, BBC Breakfast and the fact that a lot of newspapers ran a story about him being a creationist and uh, questioning whether he was suitable for the role um, of being the presenter of uh, the, the you know a major BBC breakfast show. Um, and we, we ran a blog by David Robertson, who, if you're a regular listener to Unbelievable, you may know of and be familiar with, criticising what he calls the hounding of uh, Dan Walker by the media. And, uh, and that's had a, a lot of interesting reception. In fact, a, a number of atheists I know who actually agree with David on, on the points he makes in the blog. If you'd like to read it, uh, it's up at the website now, premierchristianity.com. Uh, go there and, uh, and you can read it for yourself. Um, a little later on, I'm going to tell you about an event coming up um, that I've been sent details of by Steve Jeffrey from Emmanuel Evangelical Church. Um, but we'll be hearing some of your feedback as well towards the end of today's programme. So look out for that and we'll be hearing what you had to say about recent editions of the programme. Right now, we'll get into the final part of today's show. You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio. So in the final part of today's show, we've been discussing uh, the story of Luke Griffiths Williams. I I like to get interesting people on Unbelievable um, with different faith backgrounds to come on and dialogue and debate uh, with Christians. Well, um, Luke has has seen a few different iterations, uh, Christian to Jew to atheist, and we sort of got to the point where he started to reject his uh, Judaism uh, in his story thus far. And uh, Richard Harvey 
has been interacting with him, a Jew, Jewish follower of Jesus himself, uh, Richard, and, uh, and so he's been able to bring some of his expertise to bear in the conversation on that front. Um, we've got to this point, though, in your story, Luke, where Richard's saying he feels you're, you're perhaps misrepresenting a bit of a straw man view of the, the kind of the way in which the, the ancient Hebrews and Israelites viewed God, and the, you kind of, you say it all boils down to a sort of a, a well, a swindle in the end, uh, in the way that they were being told, yes, God is with us. We've checked in the box once a year and, you know, the Ark of the Covenant and so on. Um, Richard says uh, that's a misrepresentation of, of the fullness of what the Jews recognized as the their encounter with God and so on. Um, I, I mean, it, it, is this fair that Richard says you're, you're, you're kind of really going down a rabbit hole, which he thinks is rather peculiar one really to to to, mm. to focus on that as the reason for, for for your lack of faith eventually in judaism as yeah. well and, and the old testament i mean i i think i think we come up against this word faith a lot and i i, I think it would be good to look at that a little bit um i think one of one of the kind of um I, I, I think one of the things that we hear a lot is if there was proof in God, you wouldn't need faith kind of thing. It's like it is as if as if we're able to actually show that Christianity is true or that Judaism is true or that anything else is true. It would somehow be devalued in some sense that and Rich has talked about the gift of faith, which I think is an interesting thing as well, which means that actually the individual doesn't get to choose whether they have that or not. That's kind of God's choice. Um, but I, you know, if I know we've we've kind of looked briefly at Adam and Eve, but um, Adam and Eve were able to walk in the garden with God. And that 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 didn't get rid of them as being people who were able to follow God. It didn't mean that they were then less human as a result of that. Um, Jesus was able to know that he was God and that didn't create a problem. Um, it's it's almost as if it's being said that, you know, if God actually let people know in a, in ways which were undeniable that God was real and people actually knew that God was real, in some way any relationship people had with God would be less meaningful. Um, and I'm a, I'm a little bit confused by that thinking. You, you think that, I mean, what you've described there is, is something of the, the hiddenness of God and that he may have purposes involving trusting him in ways that you wouldn't be able to do if, if you yes, were just sort I mean, of given irrefutable proof. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, uh, let, yeah, let's I, have Richard's response. Well, I, I think the God that you're looking to believe in, or if you like failing to believe in, is the God of the deists, the God of the rationalists, the person who wants absolute uh, incontrovertible proof for not only the existence of God, but the goodness of God, and if you like, the activity of God in history. These were the deists who, who went around not particularly looking highly on the scriptural evidence for God, but rather seeing God as a philosophical proposition that could be proved or disproved. Now, I'm sorry to say that the God of Scripture, the God in Christ, in Yeshua, Jesus, doesn't behave like that. He mm. actually offers us a challenge, which you said about the gift of faith. Yes, faith is a gift, but each of us is then called to 
exercise it and we have the choice about exercising it. So I believe in my wife and I believe that my wife exists. But at the end of the day, it's whether my wife still loves me. And when on Valentine's Day, I'm going to buy her flowers and we're going to, you know, celebrate the fact that we got engaged 28 years ago. That is an ongoing relationship I have with a living human being. And if that's how I prove, you know, the love of my wife, that's even more how God proves himself to me. So I think you're using the God of the deists rather than the God who reveals himself. As Justin said, sometimes God is hidden. Sometimes God is absent. Sometimes God is angry. Sometimes God hides his face. There's a mystery here to faith, which is why I think the task of anyone who's thinking seriously about their faith is to say, O Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief, and I believe in order that I may understand. We we are approaching the end of the programme. Um, Luke, did you feel like, I often ask this of, of atheist mm. guests who have had some journey out of Christianity, um, do you feel like you could become a believer, either Jewish or Christian again? What would it take, I suppose, at this point in your in your journey? Yeah, I think that's a really good question and a really fair one. Um, I think... I think, as as Richard said, I I am looking for something which philosophically and logically holds holds together. And you know, I'm I'm not Alice in Wonderland who said it's it's really easy to believe impossible things. I believe two or three every day. Um, you know, and for me, I'm I feel that. The new morality, if you like, um, and morality that has come about through atheism has shown itself to be in advance of religious morality. I think when we look at an issue like women priests, um, just to take an example, and women's liberation, but it came to the rest of the world before it came to Christianity. You l- look at the issue of slavery. You look at the issue of homosexuality. You, you look at all these issues and you go, actually, the, the major religions are not places from which people are finding the moral guidance that we would expect to be coming from a divine being. They're not... They're not 3,000 years ahead. They're actually trailing behind. Um, so I don't, I don't think that we, we can look to religion for a moral vision or a, a guidance in that way. And I think this, as I say, I think this idea of forgiveness, this idea that our starting point is that we need to be forgiven as opposed to a, you know, right from the stage where we are a child, you know, we need saving. I, I don't think that's a good view of humanity. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a whole nother question, I suppose, the, the idea of whether secular humanism, which I think is probably more what you mean by giving us a morality, because most of my atheist mm. friends would say atheism does nothing but deny the existence of god it doesn't have an opinion on what is moral or yeah. not moral but but perhaps but secular humanism that, I, if I you were if you were adopting that, that as an atheist god. then i would say that a belief in god gives a particular moral code and a particular set of beliefs which i think are disadvantages in considering moral issues as opposed to advantages 
Um, well, as I say, there, there's an interesting debate yeah. to be had there. Um, yeah, I think uh, if, but, if you uh, read uh, Jonathan Sachs's new book, uh, Not in God's Name, it's mm. very clear you know, that religious groups have used the name of God to justify terrible things. Oh, but I, I don't think that really can sort of outbalance the other side of the question, which is that the new atheism, and you mentioned Sam Harris, or I was told, uh, is actually a very moral um, approach in some ways. It mm. is a sort of enlightened secular humanism. But what the new atheists don't see is that they're really coming from a secular version of what was called Christian humanism in the 16th mm. and 17th centuries. So the classical atheism of, for example, Freud or Marx or, or Mao or Nietzsche has really morphed now into a much more sort of, I would say, sugar-coated type of secular humanism which tries to build a system of moral values without the need to believe in God. And we're living in a post-Kantian world where fact and value have been separated and, and this has often led to the marginalization of, of, of religious or believing people. But again, I don't think that disproves God. It's simply not wanting to do ethics with God in the picture. But from my perspective, coming from, if you like, the Judeo-Christian tradition and seeing the impact that that has had on contemporary culture as well, we are still trying to find the absence of God, Martin Buber's phrase, as, as something that we realise our society needs. That's why there's so much interest in spiritual transformation generally. We are going to call a close to things there it's been really interesting getting your story and being able to have this uh, really interesting discussion on the back of it luke um so maybe in 10 years time come back again see if you've become yeah, a christian again who knows maybe you'll have you'll have come full circle by then but we we don't know i'm being facetious really but uh, it, it will be fun to keep in touch with you anyway luke and see see what happens down the line uh, for the moment thank you for being with me on the program today and uh, and all the very best to you Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to speak to you. Great to meet you, Luke. And Richard, thanks for being on the show as well. Um, all the best, and perhaps we'll, we'll see you again in due course. If you want more on, on Richard, uh, mappingmessianicjewishtheology.eu is where you can find out more about his book and his writing and, and more besides. All the links uh, to my guest from today's show, that's premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. And I'll be reminding you how to get in touch with the programme in just a moment's time. Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. If you want to get in touch about anything you've heard on today's programme, I'd love to hear from you. Unbelievable at premier.org.uk to send your emails in. We'll be reading out some of your emails in a moment's time in regard to last week's programme on whether atheists are uh, unhappier than Christians, or should I say whether Christians are happier than atheists. Um, and also uh, you can, of course, tweet, uh, follow the show via Facebook and so on at UnbelievableJB facebook.com slash unbelievable jb uh, all of those links and more available from the website as per usual premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable a uh, quick shout out to steve jeffrey who sends me details of um, the theology conference that he's got going on at his church um, uh, this is found at northlondontheology.org steve writes it's hard to imagine anything more central to our faith than the character of our god and the bible teaches that god is triune the one living and true God is three, 
Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Yet the doctrine of the Trinity remains mysterious to many Christians. And even if we think we understand it, it's often hard to see the point. What practical relevance could there be to the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, they'll be tackling those questions and many more at the 2016 Emmanuel Church Conference, the very practical doctrine of the Trinity, Saturday the 12th of March. Special guest who's going to be speaking there, Peter Lightheart, I believe. So um, come along to explore more of what the doctrine of the Trinity means, discover why it matters that God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit, what difference it makes to our relationship with God, our prayers, our worship, our church communities and our mission to the world. Uh, Information and booking details, as I say, at northlondontheology.org. Thanks to those who've been getting in touch uh, via Facebook. David uh, in British Columbia in Canada says, I listen to the show on iTunes every week. Really enjoy it. I recently had an idea for a guest. Have you heard of Miroslav Wolf? He's a popular theologian who wrote a book called Allah, A Christian Response, in which he advocates the idea that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. I think his controversial views would be a good fit for Unbelievable. And as it's a timely topic as well, since a professor at Wheaton College in Illinois was recently fired for agreeing with Wolf and incidentally Pope Francis on this theological position yes that's a great idea and i really must try and get him on he is certainly an interesting theologian isn't he uh, tracy says i'm across the pond in alabama and i love your show i'm a 50 something dad of four and your show has really helped me in many ways i must confess when i saw your name tracy i assumed you were a woman because here in the uk that's normally a, a, a female name but i guess um it also is a male name where you're from your neck of the woods uh thank you you say i've listened to many of your podcasts and don't know if you've ever done a show on this topic or not but lately i've been doing a little research about languages i've traveled a good bit and languages fascinate me when i hear a language i don't know my first thought is how in the world can anyone make sense of that but they can and they do and from what i've discovered the atheists have their views for where languages come from and there's of course a christian view as well just throwing this out for a possible topic Topic for a future show. Thank you very much, Tracy. I will consider it. And Maria also got in touch via Facebook to say, an amazing podcast radio show. So glad to have discovered it. I admire the host for being quite sharp on a new subject each week, being able to follow the guests' arguments and ask good questions to make the discussion move forward. Thanks for doing this show. Uh, here, here in the UK, Maria, I would call it uh, blagging is, is what's mainly involved. Uh, Pretending to know what they're talking about and then picking it up as you go along tends to get me by. Uh, Thank you very much for getting in touch. Uh, We've also had a number of emails in. Um, Here's Chris Goswami. Now, Chris was actually the person who uh, talked to me first and suggested the idea of doing a show on whether Christians are happier than atheists. And uh, so he's now listened to the show from last week in which our Christian guest Anne Morrissey interacted with our atheist guest Craig James on that subject. Um, We were particularly going on the fact that a number of reports seem to suggest that people of faith do indicate more well-being, more happiness than those without. And uh, Chris writes, the regular UN reports into world happiness performed by the Earth Institute tend to agree that religion enhances life satisfaction. These reports say this is mainly in poorer countries in helping people to extract meaning from hardship. However, the addition of the report I read added that 75% of all research does point to a positive effect of people's faith, especially as a stress buffer for life's painful events such as bereavement. And as Anne pointed out, religion also usually involves community and social interaction, both of which can be hugely beneficial for us. I'd also agree with Anne that resilience, i.e. her idea of an ability to bounce back from life's setbacks, is of more bearing, in fact, than happiness. Uh, This from Avril says, Thanks for the programme. I know it was about happiness, but of course happiness can be defined in so many ways. Was St Paul happy? 
What about secret believers? They face abuse, violence, even death if found out, but still they're coming to Christ, prepared to die. Why? What about martyrs through the ages? It boils down to purpose and a reason for the creation and life. How do human beings live without reason? Are we empty players on an empty stage? The alternative, for God so loved the world, and when you embrace that, you find out, yes, there is reason and purpose, and this is the good news for your life, and mine has meaning and purpose. The best news any human being could ever embrace. And um, Ron in Dallas says, um, greetings from the great state of Texas. I've been listening to Unbelievable for years, really enjoy the program. While listening to the program with Anne and Craig, I thought of a program topic suggestion. Is it legitimate to call religion a virus? James obviously thinks so, since he's written a book entitled The Religion Virus. But Morrissey made multiple references to memes and mutations as well, and seemed to more or less go along with James's use of the well-worn biological metaphor. However, in reality, the notion of memes and mind virus viruses is just so much pseudo-scientific claptrap. There's already a human discipline that is focused on the study of ideas and how humans change them over time. They do not evolve. Ideas are intelligently designed. It's called philosophy. The concept of a meme was created by Dawkins so he could apply his biological expertise in philosophical, religious and social spheres. Unfortunately for Dawkins, there's very little analogous between the transmission of ideas and the transmission of genetic material, aside from the fact that they both can be spread. The same is true of manure. Anyway, you go on to give some uh, useful pointers towards uh, where we could go if we were organising a, uh, a show on that. And, of course, there are people like um, Dawkins, Dan Dennett, Susan Blackmore and so on. Um, because, uh, <clears throat> And, of course, there are people like uh, Dawkins, Dennett, Blackmore and so on who have... Uh, uh, heralded the idea but uh, you say that um, it seems to have fallen out of favour recently they can't get anything published on the subject anymore um, Jason emailed to say the latest debate are Christians happier than atheists seemed more like a non-debate and as far as I can tell there were two reasons for that Firstly, your atheist debater Craig James conceded that religious people are happier than atheists. Well, that should have been the end of the debate right there. But instead, Craig used the opportunity to sneak in another topic altogether, which was why are atheists unhappy? Since Anne Morrissey, your Christian debater, seemed only prepared to debate the primary topic, are Christians happier, she really had little more to offer. Second, Miss Morrissey's discussion strategy was sort of a bend-like-a-read approach to Mr James's more aggressive strategy. This resulted in her giving up ground that she really needn't have. For instance, she agreed with him that religious people have it better under atheist states while atheists have it worse under religious ones but we know that this isn't the case recent history has demonstrated that the state atheism severely and violently oppressed the religious in places like Cambodia the USSR, China, Albania, Cuba and to this very day in North Korea those states that Mr James likely has in mind like Sweden are not in fact atheist states they're states with a growing number of people disenchanted with mainstream religion yet still heavily spiritual um, anyway, thank you very much. You also suggested one or two other areas that you'd like to uh, to to see debated more. Um, you had a note about the previous devil's advocate debate between Roos and Randall Rouser. I loved how amicable and articulate the two were, but I couldn't help feeling your atheist debater Roos sort of struck out with what was essentially a you have to eventually take it on faith kind of stance. And that doesn't seem to be the sort of reasonable faith we see espoused by many of the best modern Christian theologians and philosophers where one's faith doesn't boil down to a sort of blind faith, but one based on the use of the intellect and on trust established on previous past experience. 
Thank you very much, Jason. Interesting thoughts. Uh, Carol um, wanted to say uh, in regard to that uh, happiness discussion, uh, regarding the ubiquitous age of the earth and length of the days issue, even though the topic of happiness has nothing to do with the age of the earth uh, or Genesis 1, and Morrissey did mention Adam and Eve and the days in Genesis, and Craig James mentioned 6,000 years and so on. Uh, They were both very calm, perhaps because they agreed, but in some debates, disagreement about this has been heated. Stephen Lloyd has said that he is a young fossil evolutionist and that the day length is not crucial to his argument. Please invite him back to discuss this in greater detail. I'm sure we will do creationism again at some point, Carol, but um, as you say, uh, that was a bit of a side issue, really, in that discussion last week. Maybe just time for one more email, and uh, this is going back again. Uh, Stuff continues to roll in um, on the email on that programme we did on uh, same-sex parenting, adoption, surrogacy, and so on. Um, and uh, this is Nick in New Zealand, says, um, I'd like to offer comment with regards to the debate on whether gay marriage is bad for children. Now, Bobby Lopez expressed frustration about the focused opposition he has endured for publishing his views from pro-gay supporters. Uh, Mr Croft described this reaction as pushback. However, this pushback has been in some cases vindictive, calculated and ruinous for those on the receiving end. Take example, the Christian couple from Oregon who were fined 135,000 US dollars for allegedly causing over 170 traumatic responses in a lesbian couple because they respectfully declined their request for a wedding cake. If the gay minority wishes the culture to accept them as potential viable parents, then they're going to show that they have the moral, psychological and emotional fortitude to cope with setbacks such as the above mentioned. Are all homosexuals so fragile? On the contrary, they're often model citizens. However, the fruit from an increasing number of interactions is total intolerance and offences are resolved legally. For decades, gay activists have requested acceptance and tolerance. Surely that cuts both ways. There appears to be a growing Christophobic intolerance from certain factions within the gay community. Thus, challenge and opportunity arises. Firstly, a challenge for activists such as Mr Croft to encourage tolerant and respectful pushback within his spheres of influence, which he may well be doing, instead of the vengeful, vicious and potentially damaging pushback that Bobby and others have discovered. Uh, Secondly, an opportunity arises for Unbelievable to discuss whether gay activism is intolerant towards Christians given the recent legal actions in the US. Perhaps, Justin, you could pair up potential guests such as Dr. Paul Church, whose story can be found at massresistance.org, with Dr. Michael Brown from The Line of Fire, who's also familiar with the subject. Uh, On the other side of the aisle, perhaps uh, gay activist Dan Savage and Mr. Croft could relate their position on this issue. The X-Files claimed the truth is out there. Perhaps it's time for your listening audience to see if the X-Files was right. Okay, there you go. Thank you very much for that, Nick. And um, thanks to others who have been in touch as well recently about uh, other shows. Good to have your interactions. I always enjoy reading them. Do send them in uh, about today's programme. Unbelievable at premier.org.uk and look forward to seeing what you thought about our conversation between Luke and Richard today. For the moment, uh, thanks for being with me on Unbelievable. I'm going to be here still for the profile between four and five today, speaking to Eric Delve this afternoon. But for now, let me leave you with what's coming up at the same time next week. You're unbelievable. Really exciting programme for you. Anti-theism. We're asking, was Christopher Hitchens right about religion? In a programme where we reflect on the influence of Christopher Hitchens before his death in 2011 upon the atheist movement, uh, we're going to be hearing from Peter Harris. Now, he's a Christian thinker and theologian currently writing a PhD 
on Christopher Hitchens. Now, he'll be in conversation with atheist blogger Ed Turner. And Ed's own atheism has been strongly influenced by Christopher Hitchens' writing and speaking over the years. And we may even be joined by Peter Hitchens, of course, the brother of Christopher, who himself is a strong confessing Christian, very much in contradistinction to his late brother, Christopher. So looks like it should be an interesting programme. Hope you can be with me for that at the same time next week. Until then, have a good week. Music.